This is Rodney, Godfather Don Chapman, speaking to you live from the planet Brooklyn. We are here at Fly Fidelity, coming in hot, coming in live, about to drop it like we always do. First I say, what we're going to do. Then you say, I don't know. What do you want to do? Well, we're going to do what you want to do. I have an idea. You're going to dig this. The Fly Fidelity Podcast is the solution. It's the best. Check it out. You want to get super fly, fly. Details just ahead. Do you love credible content, but, but, but hate how long you have to wait? And who wants super thick and frothy dumpster juice with rat corpses in it? There's a better way. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly. Fly. Fly Fidelity. Fidelity. Fly Fidelity Podcast. Fly Fidelity, baby. Fidelity, baby. Fidelity. With your host, Luke Bailey. What's going on and welcome to another episode of Fly Fidelity with your host Luke Bailey. This week, the man of no words breaks his silence. Legendary MC and beatmaker, Godfather Don is special guest. In this rare interview, Don speaks to his humble beginnings and early inspirations on his journey to becoming one of rap's most elusive. We talk about the making behind some of your favorite Godfather Don releases, some of his many other talents, as well as the future and new releases. Enjoy the conversation. I'm curious about your first musical epiphany. Is there one that you recall either sound-based or purely musical that pushed you to explore sound? Uh, oh, most definitely, man. I mean, let's see. My father was a guitar player, and my brother was also... My older brother was a musician as well, and I used to always beat on the drums when they had their rehearsals in the living room and stuff like that. So I was always around music, always around sound. Uh, and let's see, more specifically to your question, I guess, um, uh, hmm, I guess uh, <clears throat> once I started uh, studying musical instruments or, you know, I started with the guitar and well, drums really, but once I get in, got into the guitar and then you know checked out the harmony and everything and you know the idea of harmony and mm. chord structure and everything now i didn't know this stuff like with technical terms you know what i mean like a 
uh, dominant night, you know, all of that stuff, you know, technical terms. I just knew that certain things was happening at certain times that was giving um, what you call the music certain colors, certain uh, attitudes, you can say, you know, like uh, harder music or edgier or emotional, what they call now, like ballads and, you know, right. whatever. So I started to make those distinctions early based on just the fact that certain things as far as tones and rhythms was happening at certain times. And then uh, once I started fooling around with the guitar and stuff, I said, ah, oh, ah. Oh. Now, this is right before I got into hip-hop, you know what I mean? So I guess the musical thing for me was already realized before I got into hip-hop. So got you so you're cutting your teeth playing the electric guitar at a time when right. hip-hop is still essentially i guess being defined i'm assuming this is early to mid 80s right this is like a mid early 80s mid 80s you know this is um like once i got enamored with the guitar man you know i tried to put little bands together in my building in my neighborhood any chance to just make noise on the uh guitar you know, it was a great, great old friend of mine, you know, still buddy of mine. You know, we call him Moses. He's like a, you know, one of those neighborhood characters, like a prophet sort of guy. You know, yeah. you see him in a mysterious puff of smoke when you're feeling down or you're feeling perplexed about something. Poof! Then Moses is walking around the corner and he has the answer to your, you know, the most perplexing questions of a creative nature. So um, it was that guy, you know, I have to mention him, that introduced me to playing musical instruments. You know, as a matter of fact, my first guitar, I actually built it with his help, you know. So, you know, and that's right before hip-hop. You know, he got to see me do hip-hop and everything and influenced me a lot, as a matter of fact. You know, I, I'm skipping a little bit, but he gave me a couple of records that I use that people know that I'm sure you'll get into and that'll bring me back to Moses and how important it was you know he was in uh just my development I even gave him a shout on the back of hazardous believe it or not you know Moses Godfrey Arthur but anyhow yeah so that musical thing I I realized you know within myself right before hip-hop and that you're right the eight mid early mid 80s guitar Wanted to be a guitar hero, Ingve Malmsteen, Eddie Van Halen, all of that kind of stuff. Mm. Richie Blackmore from Rainbow, all of that stuff. You know, playing that stuff, going to jams and everything. And, um, you know, that's the music was already uh, in me and bubbling to get out at that point. So for the sake of framing the time and place back then, can you yeah, talk about yeah. your earliest experiences through the social lens of hip-hop growing up in Brownsville? Ah, uh, Right. Um, well, I mean, to the earliest memories of hip-hop was about rap, right? I mean, not the word the way they use it now, like a, a genre, more like an activity, right? right. Rap. You know, like uh, guys, whether they're um, adversaries, uh, all of this is in a friendly context, a creative context, whether they're adversaries, like battling graffiti or whatever, clothes, styles, you know, news, or whatever the case was, it was an activity that involved one guy bragging about, 
you know, whatever the subject was, how nice his clothes were or how cool his car was. It, it's, it was like a, a community, um, a ritualistic thing, you know, like I got a rap, like, you know, a rap for a lady or a rap, a rap for a lady and a rap towards a dude about a subject is really was like the same activity to me. You know, it, it involves style, delivery, great subject matter, good references. If if uh, one had that sort of, uh, uh, I guess, memory or experience about seeing a lot of things and making sense of um, things, uh, to use them in conversation for examples and stuff. But, um, yeah, it was an activity, and that's what I saw. And once... The block parties and everything started. Now, don't forget, you know, I wasn't—I was more into rock and stuff at this point. So, the way I'm looking at it was an activity, not as a musical genre yet at that point. You—you you, you feel me? Absolutely. So, right. So it was like a community thing where guys came together and they're hashing things out or they're discussing things with a certain style and a certain. You know, it was it was fascinating to me because I I wasn't what you would call a street guy. I mean, I still grew up in the thick of all that stuff, but you know, my uh, inclinations was towards a different direction. Let's just say that. And you know, just seeing that sort of activity happen with the guys that were out there involved in what you would call the, the beginnings of that sort of music, you know, that's how I saw it. Like a activity and stuff like that you know where guys would get together and rap about things man yo i'm telling you man times are so hard i can't believe it you know and to me it sounded lyrical it was great it's cool stuff and and then you know once they started introducing like the uh the the breaks you know the james brown breaks and you know the block parties it, it wasn't yet defined like you said right. you know it was it was like uh still like a a man using his instrument with background music or, you know, a band. In this case, the band being the DJ or the the drummer or the guy hitting on the uh, conga drums or whatever, you know, like rhythm and talking, you know, griot style. So that's how I perceived it, you know. You mentioned the relationship, of course, between community and the music that was coming out back then. What was it for you about rap that worked for you as a point of discovery back then? What was it that stuck out for you? What worked? Um, the idea that you could say something and say it how you wanted to say it and how it needed to be said, but in a very, I don't want to say safe, but a creative context uh mm. um see and i don't want to necessarily say musical because you know rap was more than just musical you know like yeah. words and a lot of stuff that go into it but uh yeah it, it, for me man it was just a, a way to say what you had to say the way you had to say it when you had to say it right and whether it was intense or slick or whatever and um that appealed to me and using the words, you know, with the words, of course, just right. saying what you, you know, that was the style and what would later become the technique and all of that stuff. So that was cool to me, having come from playing instruments, you know, and not necessarily vocalizing or singing or stuff like that, just playing uh, notes and rhythms on instruments. 
So hearing this thing with the words, for me, it it kind of, I, I started saying, you know, I wonder if I did this like mm. this or approached it the same way, like, what, man, I could really do something cool with it. You know, I mean, everybody thinks that, but, you know, I, I just thought it was a cool thing that attracted me to it so much that you could say what you had to say, the way you had to say it, when you had to say it, you know, that's, you know, for the timing and stuff like that and cadence. So, I mean, that that's what got it. That's what was it for me. Yo, what's up, Blastmaster KRS-One? This jam is kicking. Word. Yo, what up, D-Nice? Yo, what's up, Scott LaRock? Yo, man, we chilling. This funky fresh jam. I want to tell you a little something about us. We're the Boogie Down Production Crew. And due to the fact that no one outside there knew what time it was, we have to tell you a little story about where we come from. South Bronx. The South, South Bronx. The South Bronx. The South, South Bronx. South Bronx. The South, South Bronx. Tell me this style is terrific. It is kind of different, but let's get specific. KRS-One specialized in music. I'll only use this type of style when I choose it. Party people in a place to be KRS-One attacked. You got dropped off MCA because the rhymes you wrote was whack. So you think that hip-hop had its star out in Queensbridge? If you pop that junk up in the Bronx, you might not live. Me and a fr- another good friend of mine, Sheik, you know, he used to, well, he's, I think he would still rhyme if somebody asked him. But he was into rap before me. I also gave him a shout out on the back of uh, Hazardous as well. So, you know, everything I'm telling you, this is, this is the real, you're getting the real, the straight dope. So, you know, he had all of these tapes that he used to bring to the job. You know, we were both illustrators, you know. So he used to always listen to this stuff. I'd be listening to my rock, and rock music and guitar progressive stuff. And then he'd be on the other side of the room like, boom, you know, and da 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 And I'm like, it was so cool. So I said, man, let me some of this stuff, man. Let me check this out. And he said, man, you got to hear this. You got to hear this. This is the late. This is great. It's BDP. So I'm listening to that, and um, it was so clear what he was saying. You could understand what he was doing, why he was doing it, how they did it, and what they hoped to achieve by doing it. That was in every rhyme that uh, that I heard when I listened to this BDP album. You know, my friend also loaned uh, me at the same time the Public Enemy album and the Big Daddy Kane album. So those are the three albums that I actually sat down with. I was forced to at first <laughs> from uh, my buddy, you know, being couldn't tear myself away from practicing guitar and just exploring that whole side of the thing. You know, but he said, man, come on, man. You know, he also inspired me to write my first rhyme, but that's another story. I mean, another part of the story. So, yeah, man, those that first, I would say BDP because I really listened to it. I mean, as far as just listening to somebody say something, you know, the, the right. PE was coming with the attitude, you know, it was a certain context they came, and, you know, that was a little bit more high-minded, let's say, uh, as far as the presentation. Then Kane was, 
you know, just the braggadocio, you know, and that that's a whole nother. I got into those two aspects, incorporated them later, as we'll probably get into. But the BDP, as far as just that straight, you know, like an open, open book, so to speak, you know, yeah. of, of presentation. So that, that album, I just listened to it repeatedly, you know, like, of course. and I heard how he did, you know, with the, the B, he's on the B, you know, and the, the, you know, describing their process, how they make them, and Scott LaRock's on the table, you know, and stuff mm. like that. It, you, you visualized it. Ah, that was it. Once I visualized and understood, you know, what the, the object of the exercise was, you know, and then I said, wow, this, ah, ah, like Eureka. You know, mm. I, I can hear hip-hop now. I can hear it, you know. What's interesting about this, of course, yeah. is that what makes your trajectory interesting is that you're not thinking of moving away from rock and your job as a designer at this point. You're not thinking right. of becoming an artist and an MC, are you? Or a producer oh, at that oh, point? Oh, heck no. No, no. I, I love too mu I loved music too much to ever think I would be in front of it, so to speak. Like, hey, look, I'm making... I, I... No, I was much happier doing beats for the guys in the neighborhood and say, you know, when it came, you know, that's a little further again, but I was much happier just exploring music for myself, trying to find out things and stuff, you know, so I, I, when I was at the office and listening to like hip hop, thanks to my buddy Sheik and stuff and checking out tapes, I, no way, I didn't even, I mean, there's a point where I said, I, I wonder if, I wonder if I could, but I was never thinking that first listening and getting hit, re having the impact from those records. I was never thinking, I could do this. I should do it. I'm going to do it. You know, or even with, well, guitar, I'll be, it. I'll be honest. I did want to be a guitar hero. But uh, I don't know if there were, there weren't many um, black guitar heroes <laughs> in the uh, 80s. It, the hair wasn't, you know, it was a, you know, kind of different thing happening on a rock scene at that time. Right, right. So did it take did it take you long to be convinced to produce Sheik's demo? Um, it didn't take. I mean, okay. He said, "Hey, man, I want you to play some. Man, you know what would be cool, man, if you played some guitar, and you did that, and man, and you know, and you did it." And I said, yeah, but I, I don't know anything about the, to, to really back you on it. You know, you need to, no, man, you know, you could play guitar. You know, he, he liked it because he was into Michael Jackson and Beat It and all of that stuff. And, mm. you know, so he just saw this whole thing like musical instruments being played and guitar solos on his hip-hop stuff. And I said, mm, uh. but anyhow, he convinced me and, uh, you know, I, I did it, and, uh, you know, I, I went brought this um, cheap cheap machine out of a, a, a pawn shop, I think, a Dr. Rhythm, and it was broken, you know, so I had to actually p tap out the beats as they were going to each song. It, it was really wow. awkward, and, and it sucked. Yeah, it sucked. I didn't understand, like, about the sequencing or any of that stuff. I just pulled this thing off the shelf. And then the guy says, yeah, you do this and this and this. And I said, oh, okay. And I'm taking it home and hitting this stuff. And I said, man, how do you have to, how do you, how do you keep a, keep it in time? And it was funny, man. 
It was really funny. And we did the whole we we did the whole thing like that. I got one of those little uh, four track um, Tascams. Actually, I found that in some uh, uh, warehouse as well, like a flea market and something. And that was broken as well. But I mean, again, I love the music so much that I just went in trying to find out as I did it. For me, that, that I get great uh, joy out of that, like finding out as I'm doing it. Like, I, I'm not satisfied with somebody telling me how something is. Hey, man, you got this is the greatest, you know, I don't know. And maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But, you know, when I'm doing the thing, then I'll find out for myself. I think you just answered what I'm about to ask. You definitely spoke to it somewhat. But if you were to speak a bit more to what I'm about to ask, how do you think, when you think back about your sound in the beginning, what are your earliest memories of your production being defined by your choices versus the options you had? Right. Well, I always envisioned something being... uh, uh, You could say musical... Even even uh, rhythmic-wise, you know, for me, just a drum track can be melodic, you know, as far as uh, um, just, just the arrangement of the tones and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So I've always been uh, musical in my approach. Not to say that I'm against uh, anything that doesn't sound musical, but I will use anything in a musical way, that's my preferred format. You know, even noise or something that's uh, unconventional, I would always try to incorporate it into a musical context because if it's not, if it's not about music, then what, you know, what the heck is it? (laughs) So, you know, um, that, that's, that's pretty much how it was, you know. When you were starting to rhyme, who would have been some of the touchstone influences that inspired you to rap? You mentioned, of course, Big Daddy Kane. You mentioned KRS-One. Are you considering the impact and the way that Rakim approached his wordplay in terms of the way he likened his rap's connection to jazz? Um, right. Now, what's weird about that is I, I really wasn't aware of that level of it, you can say, like the Rakim and... Even the Lakim Shabbat, all of that whole angle, I really wasn't aware of it, you know, as I was uh, developing my ears for it, you dig? Because I'm listening to just the thing that attracted me to it. He's saying something the way it needs to be said with some kind of style, some sort of craft, some hint of craft in there. And that's that's a whole other aspect of the convo I'd like to get into I'm sure we will get into it. But um, you know, uh just just checking checking out the delivery. Uh you, the message wasn't like very important as a young person, you know, the message is almost secondary, sorry to say, a lot of times rather than what's trending or something that just makes an impact on you creatively or spiritually or emotionally. So, I mean, uh, I I'm I still have to point to, uh, I mean, I'm, I was listening to all of that stuff when it came out, but still that the, that Kane, BDP, Chuck D, that, that threesome right there, if you will, 
just made it that just covered all the bases for me. So unfortunately I was I was so shocked, so rocked by those <laughs> those three. And uh anything that came after that came almost through a lens of that, unfortunately. So that's why when that aspect of the music, the hip hop came, you know, with the consciousness and the I wasn't really uh, on board with it 100%, you know, because I, I understood the necessity of the message and everything. But as an art form and entertainment, I really didn't put the two together like that. I didn't know if it was very, I didn't know if it was appropriate or, you know, you making money off of, you know, yeah, you know, I'm starting to think about it and then the message yeah yo man this new this this other kid man rock him and this stuff you know these guys are talking this stuff now of course chuck d had a message too but uh chuck d again what i liked about him was that he was straight like he's just talking like in a uh um like a uh, what you call those things like a megaphone like he's right that's the attitude i got that's the that's what the vibe i got from chuck d like he's right by your ear with a megaphone in terms of the message, you know, and it's, so I liked his delivery, his approach and his delivery. I, I, I always dug it, the, you know, and his rhyme style. We could talk about it later or, you know, just when we get into the craft. But, um, yeah, I mean, Rakim, that stuff is still amazing. The juice. I got enough to go around, and the thought takes place uptown. I grew up on a sidewalk while on street talk, and then taught to Hawk, New York. I go to Queens for Queens to get the food from Brooklyn. They phony in Manhattan and never been talking. Go uptown to the Bronx and boogie down, get strong on the island, recoup and lay around. Time to build my juice back up, pop stack up, suckers get smacked up. Don't doubt the clout, they know what I'm about. Knocking niggas off, knocking niggas out, shaking them up, waking them up, breaking them up, breaking them up. Standing on shaky ground, too close to the edge. Let's see if I know the ledge. I, I saw a tape the other day where um, he was, uh, they, they was doing like a throwback thing when he was promoting Juice, and he did um, Juice live at this, uh, I think it was like a broadcast TV show or something, and I believe uh, Prodigy from Mob Deep is introducing him, wow. and then... Yeah, I, that's that's sick in itself. But once Ra starts the rhyme with Juice, the first three, um, uh, the first few words, man, and I'm like, this is it's crazy. I had um, texted a, a, a another colleague of mine, Sir Menelik, uh, you know, and I said, yo, man. So I sent it to him, and I said, yo, this is this is it's like, and then he, Sir Menelik, uh, he. he uh, sent me back a message. I said, "This is this is just straight crack. <laughs> it's straight crack." <laughs> you know, I said, "Damn, man. Okay, I got you. I got you. Wow. See, I didn't think of it like that, but you know, he's like a street dude, so it's funny, man." Well, better way to describe but, that, right? Yeah, yeah. I, it, it shocked the hell out of me. Um, I mean, the way he describes what I do is funny too, but uh, you know, but that's their mentally. How did he describe um, what you do? Um, oh man, the terms are very. Um, the terms and words are very. Uh, 
very eclectic, uh, very um, out there, very, uh, oh, boy. This is, uh, I, I, I don't know. He just, he call he says that I'm an influence on him, but mm. I mean, I don't know, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I know he, he started coming around and stuff and, you know, Keith brought him and, you know, it's cool. You know, it's cool. I dig the dude a lot, man. Love his art. And, um, yeah, he has a lot of strange, uh, impressions to my mind about my own work you know and uh i I don't know if i co-sign anything anybody says about me because i i can't know you know i can't get outside of myself quote unquote and say yes i agree with that 100 percent. you know so i don't know whatever someone says about my art or the thing i do then you know it's for someone else i guess to say yeah that's that's cool so it's hard for me to even repeat them you know hey he says that i'm the most gifted technician that ever no, no you know I, I wouldn't repeat it if he said something like that cause, uh, i don't know no i, I can't understand. co-sign I yeah yeah that. going back to your relationship with hip-hop rap and how it's informed how instrumental were labels like Profile and Select Records in informing everything you knew about hip-hop? Oh, well, the first thing was that uh, they had um, they signed a lot of people from the community. I mean, yes, the people in the community invented the art form. I get it. But... For a record label at that time, you know, I guess we're looking at pop, R&B, and rock, and, you know, all of that stuff. We're not seeing that uh, artists, recording artists could be the guy next door to me or the dude down the block or the delivery man, and you know? So we, it, it was like a cool thing. And then, you know, you had these labels like Profile, uh, uh, Select, Next Plateau, and you would bump into everybody that seemed to get get these deals now when the when the uh, genre started taking off, you know, like you'd bump into Special Ed, and you know he'd be talking, and Action be talking. Then you go down the block, then there's uh, Chubb, and they're they're at the basketball court, and they're freestyling, and then everybody's saying they're getting this deal, and he's going to be on this label, and he, it was it was wild for a minute, and um. These labels used to be so easy to step to, which was another thing that I missed from those days. Like, I can remember days where I'm walking through the city with a pocket full of demos, me and my crew from the neighborhood, and we just go up here, hey, man, you know, this is so-and-so, and you're going to hear from us soon, man, we're going to be the next one. Uh, just leave your tape in that box over there, man. Boom, boom. <laughs> <laughs> and we just do this. We just go through the city the whole day, stop, get a pizza, then turn around and come back up the other side of the block. But, you know, it's crazy. I wish I had half of those tapes that I left in those boxes now. You know, I got a couple of them back, but uh, I wish I could get them all back. You know, I used to just make demos for those boxes, believe it or not. Now these five songs will really be cool. And run back up there. I got another tape. Oh, just throw it in that box. In that box, I doubled. You know, I used to do that like maybe once a month. Like just tapes and demos and demos and tapes. And each one is different and tailored for the label. Of course. 
I mean, because Select had Chubb, Kid, and Play, so you would put certain things that, uh, oh, my goodness, night go, night go, you know, all of that kind of, you know, cool, right. poppy kind of, you know, I don't see, again, I don't want to describe anybody, I don't want to sound weird or twisted trying to describe anybody's stuff, but just my opinion of what was going on that I would tailor the demo for that, you know? So what's the starting point for Hazardous in I21? You're signed to select records, fast forward. How does that happen, in fact, before we get into the making of Hazardous in I21? You mentioned uh, handing your tape in, dropping his tape in a letterbox. Right, right, right. Was anything now, from Hazardous on that tape? Was any Were any demos? No. As a matter of fact, uh, let me see. I, um, there was material that was made before the material that appears on Hazardous came out. So, I mean, me and Chubb worked a little bit on some stuff. We vibed because we were in the neighborhood. We were introduced by a neighborhood friend of mine and uh, who used to take me to do block parties and freestyle and stuff. Yeah, he, he actually um, kind of gave me the moniker... Don or Godfather. I'm trying to remember which side. I think I had Don first and then he said Godfather or whatever way it was. But anyhow, yeah, so uh, there was material before that because um, when this dude introduced me to Chubb Rock, he took me over his house, Chubb listened to some of those same tapes and said, oh, wow, man, this is interesting. I said, well, you know, I'm just just doing stuff, man. You know, I love the music and blah, blah. But I like rock and I play. He said, oh, yeah, but, um, you know, you should really, you know, I tell you what, man, come hang out. So then that started the relationship with Chubb Rock and, you know, going over to his house. And we lived in the same neighborhood, basically. So I'd just hang out over there and we'd talk about music and rhymes and stuff. Or I'd see him in the park. Yo, what's up, man? Hey, what up, Don? Yo, come by later. You know, and at that time, I think he was um, working with the A-team, trying to get them up and running, right? right? And um, so it was cool. Then Special Ed would be in the area, and they, you know, that was like a loose association and stuff. So it was pretty cool, you know, the Howie T and Special Ed, Chubb Rock thing. And so, you know, eventually Chubb brought me up to select, and then that was pretty much it. It wasn't... It, I don't know. It it happened kind of fast, you know. If I, you know, just reflecting on it, I think it happened a lot faster than I would have preferred it going. You know, you'd but anticipated, of right? Yeah, of course. I I would always do would like to have done that different. But anyhow, it's very exciting. You know, you up there and he's showing you this, and you know the the owner of select is showing talking to this and. You know, and I'm like, man, you know what? Uh, yeah, all this sounds nice, but where is that uh, chick Roxanne? Roxanne, man, you know, the the Roxanne that you, you know, that one. <laughs> you know, and he starts laughing. He says, oh, man. You know, he's like, that's the reason, that's that's all you're thinking about coming up? You say, yeah, man, I want to be. <laughs> and I used to come there, like, all the time, just, hey, man, where's, Ro- where's Roxanne? You know, it, it was incredible, man. He said, he said, Don, I can't figure you out, man. I'm trying to, I'm trying to sign you to a record deal, man, and you're, you're over here trying to 
find out other artists, man. Look, you know, looking for them. But um, yeah, that that was basically it. You know, Chubb brought me up there. We talked a little bit, and he said, "Yeah, man, why don't you guys just go and go hang out in Questar's house and see what you come up with?" Questar Welsh, you know, that was one of the um, engineers of that that time. You know, it's like Howie T. Uh, well, Questar wasn't really a producer, but I guess like Ivan, Doc Rodriguez, uh, it was a few few of those guys around, like everybody would go to. And uh, Questar Welsh was like one of those dudes that everybody, you know, people would go to like doing hip hop. You know, they were in the neighborhood, they had a feel for the music, they understood the culture a little bit more or less. And, you know, so me and Chubb would hang out in Questar's place and just vibe and do stuff. There's like, it was a lot of it's like an album worth of material, man. And I'm playing guitar on a lot of it. I play acoustic, and me and Chubb are talking and stuff, and imitating the blues. And it's like a whole. It was like a. I wish I would have had copies of it, man. But anyhow, um, Questar Welsh, Questar Welsh. I, I wonder if I'm making it, saying his name right. Yeah, he lived downtown Brooklyn when I was going there, and um. Yeah, he had a really nice studio at the time, man. Really, really cool, man. And I, I guess he was into, like, rock and stuff like that. Now, reflecting back on it, just the, the certain you know, equipment and things he had in the house. And I said, ah, you know, so I was, I, I was in love with that place, man. I said, wow, you got this guitar, this guitar. He says, yeah, man, you play guitar? I said, man. So, you know, and that was cool. He said, man, let me record this. That's why on the hazardous you hear guitar solo on the first record, you know, because that was a carryover from a lot of the stuff that I did with Chubb at Questar's house, you know. And I said, man, I gotta have some, I gotta have some guitar, and that's why I'm walking on the back with a guitar. I mean, Fred thought of another connotation, I guess, with the guitar and Little Italy and stuff, but eh. Godfather, I'm like, okay, I get it. But I wasn't thinking of it like that. I'm like, I'm taking my guitar to the studio. <laughs> <laughs> and they're trying to promote it like, yeah, Godfather Don with his instrument in his case. Wink, wink. You know, he's <laughs> going to do work for his crew. And I'm like, man, I just want to go and open the case and play some guitar someplace. You know, it's funny. Would this have been your first time in a studio back then? Um... Yeah, real studio. I mean, quote unquote, yeah. Everything else was basically in my living room or in, um maybe some dudes who were a little more advanced in their basements and stuff like that, but nothing you could officially call a studio, you know, with um you know, bookkeeping and other heads coming in there that you may recognize. So it was very very new to me. And it was uh, it was quite an experience. I have one really nice photo from that, a very good photo of some some cool person took. And um, I was thinking of publishing it. Um, it was with the engineer who did my album, and um, I don't think he's no longer with us. But um, you know that's why I didn't really want to publish it. But it's the real, it's the only photo I have from the making of Hazardous. Believe it or not, it's the only photo I have.
Hey, yo, John. Yeah. Soon as you got like 10,000 different styles, right? Once you kick like three verses and yo, we quit it. I'm ready for action. Two fractions from a contraction. Just sit back in the track and react to the way of the cave, the way of display. I run a relay held together by my DJ in the rear. But my suckers near and don't you dare. I'm housing your ass like welfare. Pro say am I. You say semi. But when I challenge you to pick up the MIC, you start shitting your new dimes, getting rough. Sitting tough and you're still hopping pump. Enough. I'm rushing, crushing, full of all of us. And don't want to cuss, but they're full of something newer. Unlike manure, more like the sewer. Slime and took a hole through the door. Rhyme, more dope than a hole or Anderson. MC's panicking, stiff like mannequins. What was your writing process like back then? Oh, man. It was like, um... Everything that was in there, I just put it out. That's why I was so dense. I mean, in my own opinion, you know, it was very dense. Because by that time, I had already developed uh, what, you know, I guess the guys in the in the hood or, my, you know, my crew, what they would call a style. You know, I had uh, developed something like that already. And, you know, and I was enamored with the idea of approaching the same word, subject matter, with different cadences, uh, mm. breakdowns, or, you know, I just thought it was great that you can say a phrase four different ways, depending on how you felt and how, I mean, that was great, because that was like um, playing an instrument. To me, that was like uh, doing a guitar solo. You wouldn't play it the same way twice over the same solo break. You wouldn't. You just wouldn't. I wouldn't play the sax the same way over a solo section now. I, I wouldn't do it. So I've always approached it like that. Even writing the words down, right, I never wrote them down. I do now, but when I wrote lyrics back then, I never wrote them as they were supposed to be said, like it's going to be said in this cadence, with this pattern, with this accent. Interesting. And this, it, I wouldn't, I, I didn't dream of doing it like that back then. I just wrote what I wanted to say, right? Alluding back to that Chuck D, BDP thing. Like I just wanted to say a certain thing, the way I wanted to say it, how it should be said, when it should be said. You know, so I would just write it like that. Then when I got in the studio, I would do all of these hundreds of takes where I would say it this way. Then I would do another take and say it that way. Then I would do another take and say it this way. And that, you know, and that's, that was like the origin of why I would end up with so many demo tapes, <laughs> you know, so many uh, takes, which everybody knows about by now. But, uh, you know, so I, 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 it was almost like sheet music for a jazz musician, you know, or at least just the, the chart, and then you know you you vibe it however you're gonna vibe it. So that's how I that's how I did it. You know, I would write the content and then recite it however it felt at the moment. Would I be mistaken in thinking that Organized Confusion are releasing and recording their debut around this point as well? Yeah, so I don't know if that that story is going around, but I mean, there, there was like a bunch of groups doing their records at the same time in Powerplay Studios, you know, which was like a hub, a hip-hop hub back then. And um, 
I was in one room, and the photo I have is me in that room with the engineer. And I just used to go in there and vibe all day and just bring all my records, no drum machine. Mm. That's one rap album. That was like the only rap album done without a drum machine, believe it or not. So, hey. But, um, so, in the next room, there's a guy coming around going, yo, man, man, this is, yo, this is nice, man. Yo, you need to, yo, man, come check out what we're doing, man. And, you know, this guy used to come and say, man, come on, listen to it. Man, me and my partner, uh, you know, we're over there, man. How much, man? Yo, we got, yo, my name is Prince Poe, man. Yo, come over. And he would, you know, I said, okay, okay, I'm going to come through, man. And um, I came through one day and I heard this wonderful music, man. I'm like, this is nice, man. This is nice. I think it was a, a song they were doing called Roosevelt Franklin, if I'm not mistaken. I, I, it, it made the, I don't know if the title is still that or not, but... I just remember it, and they had this really nice weather report sample, like a drum loop, and I said, this is nice. It's nice. It's nice. And I liked it because I didn't hear any drum programming and stuff. I I was really a fan of samples and loops, samples and loops. Oh, God. You know, if I thought drum machines were going to be at least drum machines as they were used back then, if I thought that was going to be part of my sound, I probably wouldn't have done it. You know, I wouldn't have moved forward with music the way I wanted to do it because I didn't, I didn't understand the necessity of a drum machine behind some of these great records that had excellent drums already, you know? Right, right. So, you know, again, I would go over there and Organized Confusion was there. Then another time... Another dude came over and said, yo, man, yo, I need some music, man. Like, So he's saying all this stuff, and I said, man, who is this guy? Man, man yo, you need to come in. And um, it was a group called uh, uh, Mob Style. U.S. says mob is dying in New York. Their enterprise, say police, is now dismantled. As the mafia gets run out of business, the young guys who are watching these and admiring the mobsters, they wish to be more than just criminals. They wanted to be a mafia.
it was a group called Mob Style, and it's, this rapper was named, I think his name was, uh, well, I, I forget, and I don't want to say it wrong, but anyhow, that was the group, and they were doing some incredible music as well. But um, that organized confusion story, that really, that, that I always remember that one, because that's when me and Prince Poe, you know, became kind of buds at that time. And Farrell was cool, too. But, um, you know, I didn't really get to get a chance to really develop anything too close with um, Farrell, you know. Meeting Ultra Mag MCs, how does that happen, which ultimately winds up with you becoming an honorary member of Ultra Mag for the Four Horsemen album? The fifth, the fifth, the fifth Beatle. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> the fifth Beatle, that, that was the end joke, the fifth Beatle. And I never tried to do that, by the way. I, that, that was not my intention because everybody knows I was doing other things with other people. So, I, you know, that really wasn't, you know, for the record. But, um, okay. yeah, so uh, let's see, Hazardous. So I'm doing a bunch of demos. Everybody knows those demos by now after Hazardous and before um, Hydra stuff. Um, doing a lot of demos, just meeting a lot of people, fielding a lot of, you know, guys saying stuff. Hey, we want you to do the Hey, come, come by my label. And I'm saying, yeah, yeah. And I'm developing my own little home setup. So I'm not really in a hurry to get in the studio for somebody like happened with select, like, you know, being in an actual studio. And at this time I had my own little setup at home that was good for what I was doing, which was basically making demos. And uh, so uh, they used to have these things called, um, like, music conventions. I forgot what they, they they called them in New York. They had them every year, and you'd um, mail away to get these uh, tags, and they'd have the tags for you when you show up, and that gave you, like, a three-day pass, and you go to all of these events seminars it was called a new music seminar right and they used to have it every year in new york and um i said man we got to go to one of those so the same guy who introduced me to chub rock you know he's he used to go to all of these things and politic and talk and just do his thing so one day he said man you know this year you should go man you know you really need to go don because it's a lot of people up there man and you know come on man you never know so I said, uh, all right, man. So we go. Now, I don't have a tag. So I said, man, how am I going to get in there? They're checking every. He said, no, nah, don't worry, don't worry, man. Not everybody has a tag. So we're walking around the venue, talk, I mean, outside, of course, and we're talking to people. And So the dude I'm with, he bumps into a, 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 this dude, and they're talking. You know, apparently he's a rapper, and... You know, people around him, yo, man, let me get an autograph. So I'm like, okay. So then he says, Don, come over here, man. So he said, yeah, man, this is Keith, man. Yeah, man. He says, yo, so what's up, man? What, what you guys doing? And, you know, so my friend is saying, are you trying to get in? And he, oh. So Keith was like, yeah, man, I, I didn't get my tag either, man, but I'm trying to get in too, man. I'm a... So we end up sneaking in some kind of way. or I mean, Keith probably could walk in he was royalty at that point uh already so we could just walk in with him and you know we got in there then we just started talking a lot hanging out and having a lot of hijinks after the uh event 
you know, we came outside and we're still talking about stuff and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, my friend is like, hey, man, you know, Don does a real nice beats, man. And he does, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then um, I, the details are very foggy of, you know, chronologically what happens. But uh, right. eventually he ends up coming over my house um, and... You know, we end up just making some uh, demos and stuff and doing things. You know, I I guess he heard some things I did already. I mean, the Hazardous album was already out. And, you know, know, I was doing demos and circulating a lot of demos. A lot. You know, a lot. So, you know, these demos would end up in everybody's hands. I think a lot of the beats... You know, a lot. Of, I used to give away a lot of the, the the beats on the tape, so it was almost like beat tapes as well. You know what I mean? Or yeah. things that people could probably or were probably looping and doing stuff with. So anyhow, again, long story short, Keith came over to the house, and you know he'd listen. He would always listen. We'd hang out, and we, you know, hang do a lot of hanging out at that time. A lot of talking music, hanging out, and then we eventually did some demos which were promos from well they weren't meant to be promos but some of them just ended up being like promos we would uh mention uh Bobito's show on them because for me I started listening to that show a guy turned me on to the show so I said man he plays these demos and blah, blah. I could do that man I could do that so then uh, I started making these demos, and I would send them, and Bob would play one or not play one or whatever the case was. And then, um, you know, Keith came over, and then I'd say, hey, man, let's do something, man. And then we start doing these tapes. And then I'd start doing them with other people, and then it became like a thing at that point. So that's how we met at the music New Music Seminar. I forgot what year it was. Who you are or what your age may be, if you want to achieve permanent, sustaining success, the motivation that will drive you toward that goal must come from within. Yeah, yo, Don, give me a little bit of that chicken, that smooth chicken, a little bit of that gravy. I want some old hot jazz biscuits A little bit of that blues butter Bring it in snare They never understood Many people were so slow My funky type of rhyme and my style is psycho Complex rest west My style go XX I move around on beat creating more styles Showing white boys other kids my black styles I kick lyrics like shoes right in your face Walk up on the car jacket spade pluck the ace I get slow off Now many went to school so the dummies wouldn't write them They say you'll keep your cool, you use them big words I went to college, I'm even more stupid, heard Back on the scene to pull a lesson out Even if I have to pull a blacksmith and wesson out I grab a hammer, stick a nail in that little crack Paint the monkey, show the hummingbird how to act I get atomic, hypo, galactica Word to mom, I'm in my own world Galaxy rays, powerful In a bar of 
like one bar sample music of jazz, you could come up with endless uh, endless loop points or endless um, motifs or ideas, you know, obviously, depending on the record and what you're using. Sure. But as compared to other musics, like uh, a blue, blues, like straight blues or rock and roll records or rock records that we would sample, you know, basically uh, one, four, five, or, or rock progressions, blues progressions played with electric instruments, blah, blah, blah. So um, in a bar of these wonderful records that I would get, uh, these Blue Note records and these Prestige records, there was so much happening with the arrangements and the orchestrations that a bar taken at the right spot would, for me, create a whole new musical work. Mm. Not to sound uh, very technical about it, you know, as far as legally, but... You know, with uh, for me, it, it was like a new work. You know what I mean? So jazz represented that aspect of creating hip-hop music uh, for me. That's, that's what it was about jazz. And I didn't really recognize too much that other guys were into it or doing it, believe it or not. Again, for me, the music... I, I was like a self-starter with music, you can say. I still don't read. I mean, I understand what's on the paper, but I don't read music. You know, I have musical compositions that, you know, buddies of mine transcribe, but uh, I don't read and write music necessarily in that way. So uh, just just these wonderful records with these lush orchestrations just had so much information that one bar could create a whole new vista yeah. as far as I saw it, you know, once looped in the proper way, the proper way, or the appropriate way, let's put it that way. We're talking about texture, aren't we? We're talking about tonality, and this is something that rejuvenated oh, yes, you back then as a producer. Tell me about it. I mean, right, you can... How many times... So, uh, so and so, X, Y, and Z has been sampled, and each one, each time it's used, is almost a classic. You know, mm. it's a beautiful phenomena of sampling, and uh, just the particular those records, those important records that were sampled, and what they represent for the culture. You know, the hip hop music. You know, so that that's what the jazz did for me. Yeah. I mean, you know, just represented. Endless vistas and and just modes and you know it's never a dull moment in jazz. We're bouncing around chronologically. I understand that you mentioned Cenobites as an idea, and you've talked about it to execution briefly with Core Keith. How did those records open you up back then? Um. Okay. Now, right. I guess what we're discussing here would have to be. After Hazardous and before Hydra. Right. That's the way the hip-hop world defines it for me. <laughs> Post-Hazardous and pre-Diabolique. You know? so I'm like, okay. All right, Internet, you got it. You'll take it. So, yeah, yeah. So all of those demos. Now, for me, it even goes a little bit deeper as in the sections, the eras. You know, post 
hazardous uh, is uh, those records that I guess you might find on um, uh, uh, that um, HHV release, um, right. Beats, Bangers, and right. So, yeah, that's like a lot of early stuff. And there's, there were so many more demos that I did that were even better than those, believe me. But I, I didn't have access to them for... I don't even want to go into it. But, uh, yeah, so I was doing a lot of demos. And now the records that we did that people know as the Cenobites, they were a collection of promos. Now, there are a couple of songs. Like, I said, man, let's do a song. You know, you, you do a verse, I do a verse, and you do a verse. Or you do a verse, I do a verse, and then we split the last verse. You know, I did a couple of those, too. And those kind of ended up being the song, you know, part of what makes the Cenobites a real record. You know, there's a, there's songs on it. You know, there's a complete verse and not just a few lines. And then, yeah, shout out to KCR, yo, but, <laughs> right. you know. You're starting to build the canvas. Yeah, right. So I, we didn't really set out to say, let's make a Cenobites project. Okay. I think it would have been handled a lot different. <laughs> but uh, it just happens that those particular records that featured Keith on them and me and Bob and, you know, had the KCR thing vibe in there, you know, knowing that uh, when we were doing these, knowing that they may be played the next week on Bob's show. I guess that's what made it a Cenobites type record if you could call it that later you know um back then we wouldn't say that but i guess you could say if it was cinnabites material that was the criteria that we went into it knowing that bob would play this this coming weekend we usually get together like before bob's show yeah what are we gonna do over and then once that word start getting out hey man they're going they're going to do some more stuff for next week Hey man, can I get on one? Hey man, what is it? And that's when it just started getting crazy. So I'm like, uh, forget, <laughs> forget this. This is not gonna. Ha- this I'm not doing this stuff anymore. Do you think people understand the full capacity of the impact of your run with Core Kiefer's Discernibites? Uh I think it has yet to be um, mined. I mean, there was it was so dense as far as concepts, yeah. uh, uh, lyrical uh, approaches, uh, patterns, technique. I mean, at yeah. that time, I was I just wanted to be a straight shredder. You know, I wasn't really even interested in a message at that point. You know, like a uh, like a young like the way a young guitar god would be. You know, like right. a like wow. You know, and yeah, you know, which is okay in some aspects for hip hop. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, he know he's nice. You know, not that I knew I was nice, but the idea of being nice was important in in hip hop at that time. You have to at be least nice, in, right? So that was like a burning desire for me, man. Like, yeah. I gotta be nice. I got to be, you know, Keith used to laugh how I used to obsess about it, you know. He said, man, you, you, 
you should just do it. You use what you got. Use what you have here already. No, man, I gotta write. <laughs> I gotta do it. Again. Oh man, yeah, you trying to, you trying to. That's Keith, man. You trying to. Oh man, you trying to really wreck stuff. You trying to destroy. Oh man, you trying to, you trying to just burn everything down. You don't want nobody to have. <laughs> and um, but I like the idea that you could push it. Right. Right. You know, when something's set there and it's 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 done already, I always saw the next thing. This is why I, I would hardly listen to anything that I would record, believe it or not. I I, I mean that's why some of those I don't I haven't memorized a quarter of the songs that I've written. I haven't memorized anything. I know, I know. Please don't tell anybody that. But uh, <laughs> I mean, if I had to memorize something, I mean, jazz has trained me to do that now. So I mean, I probably could do it. Like if I had to do, like some kind of show, you know, or something like that, I probably could do it. But I mean, when I was putting those things together, I would just write it, uh, recite it, however it felt at that time. Do another take if I needed to, or try another version and see if that worked. Boom! Then throw it, throw it in the uh, the drawer or the shoe uh, the, the shoe box, right. and then just move on to the next one. I could write that better. No, this wordplay. This. Uh, if I were to ask you what you felt right now were some of the best examples of your writing on those tr songs and projects, would you remember? Right. Would you be able to recall? Um. Yeah, I could remember. Um, if 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 we're talking about Cenobites era things then yeah i would say pretty much uh most i would i would say like 75 percent of what people hear that's labeled cenobites um i think a lot of that i'm kind of happy with uh in terms of what i was going for um you know as far as uh presentation technique uh Pushing extremities yeah yeah right right you know because uh, i was even willing to change my voice in it i didn't think that was a crime i mean now i probably wouldn't feel to do it as much but back then i as a musician quote unquote sometimes i felt you would need to use a a distortion pedal right or you would need to use a flanger or a chorus pedal to get a sweet sound or right. And I'm like, vocalists do this all the time from the 40s, 50s, 60s. So what's this? What if I want to change? Or if I want to, yeah, but you don't. I mean, on Hazardous, the last song, right? I think I did three different, I mean, maybe you want to call them styles, but I mean, I guess technically you could say approaches. That's on the title track. You know, where a friend of mine, Chris from Chris Music Concepts, is on there. He's saying, "Yo, Don, you know, why don't you do another style? Do a different approach this time. On this verse, try." You know, all the verses are extra long. <laughs> you know, songs are all extra long. You know, I didn't, I didn't really care about no commercial time constraints. I'm like, I didn't understand the industry as a you know, an industry at that point, you know, with norms and rules. And mm. I just said, man, this is what I have to say. Boom. And it's crazy. But um, the Cenobites, 75% of that, I would say, um, is what 
I could listen back to it and go, oh man, wow, what what was I thinking? That's that's crazy. That's crazy. Yes, X74, what's up, Nomad 107? We wanna do this. We got a special guest with us. Let's do this. We got Bob Nine. You know what we gonna do? Kick up the verse and then we ghost. 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 I got a brand new Ford, bright orange yellow pickup truck. Cruising around like I'm Johnny Esposito. Pumping my pump tape with stretching Bebabito. Looking around for that kid that robbed Joey. Oh, catch another rapper, Rob Slowly. In the back of your head, feel the Calico ammo. You know the ex, hey, hey, he's out the hospital. He played a trumpet in class, plus he had a fiddle. He had a house uptown on Green Apple Road. A human body buried, monkey plus a little toad. Scared Federal Bureau, fuck investigation. No phones, no beats, for communication. I like ice cream kids, I like Carvel. And a lot of this, like you say, was being played on Stretch Armstrong and Bobito. Right, which was surprising to me at first. I mean, yeah, if he played one, I figured, yes, it's a, it's a radio station, a fan sends this in. Now, I did do a couple for mainstream, quote-unquote, hip-hop radio. I don't know if you ever heard that promo with me and a, a buddy of mine named Kareem, who I used to uh, run with back in the days, you know, in Flatbush. Uh, you know, I used to do, again, you know, the promo thing was happening, so everybody wanted to do these promos. Yeah. So I used to, you know, so I did a couple from, let me see, it was Hot 97 or 107. Point. I think I did a, a few of those for the regular radio stations. And believe it or not, they played those. And I said, oh, wow. So there's a few recordings that people... Um, reminded me of that um that i did and uh it just let me know that the promo thing was a really cool idea i mean i i it was great like the artist actually doing something quote unquote live or just for the radio station and the fans i thought it was a cool thing you mentioned the radio station what are your recollections of the jazz department at the station oh god oh that look man I, I, there's some stories, man, of going up to KCR, because KCR had this dude that Bob used to joke about called the Jazz Man. He's like <laughs> he would come on after Bob Ito's show, I believe, and he would, you know, just play all these weird, crazy. Ra- now, right. I'm saying, whoa! Now, the first time I went up to Bob Ito's show, I, I'm walking to the studio and I'm looking at these racks. And the first thing Bobito says to me, he's like, Don, please do not mess with none of Jazzman's records. And I'm like, can I at least just look at him? He says, you can look at him, man. You can look at him. Okay. <laughs> and I'm looking at, I'm, it was like being at the Holy Grail, man. All nice promote and promotion. You know, when you get the sticker on it, the right. white sticker, promotional kind. Oh, you. <laughs> You're in the candy store. Oh, man, look. I had they had to tie me up like Hannibal Lecter and roll me into the studio before they would, uh, you know, take off my um, belts and buckles and everything. You know. Speaking of Hannibal Lecter, like, there's a lot of crazy artists during that time. One of those crazy artists was Cage. What about that WKCR promo with Cage? I believe there was about three of them, if I'm right. What was that like? Yeah. Now Cage was a great 
a great, great artist. Now, I didn't know about his thing with Eminem at that time, you know, or I don't know how early it goes back, you know, the thing with him and Eminem. But I understood Cage to be like another trailblazer, like a dude who was doing something, quote unquote, different, or at least something other than what I was doing, which I could always appreciate because that would just allow me to really listen to it as it is, you know, not like as a copy or something trying to be something else. So I just listened. And, um, you know, uh, I think, I think it was something put together by Bob. I'm not sure the first time we hooked up, but, um, a lot of things surrounding that, that promo, a lot of the stuff that was said on it, from me was in reference to a situation that was happening in my personal life and which is why it's called hot crib uh hot crib promo because we actually did that in bob and stretch's then apartment or home where i think i forgot where it was exactly but yeah my equipment was over there for um I mean, that's another story why I was over there. But we made the promo there, and I believe Cage was coming to see Bob or something. But, you know, it's just all everything aligned and came together. And Beastie Boys was there as well, believe it or not. Or I think maybe one or two of them. I didn't really know them well at that time. But I know, I believe Stretch was friends with them and Bob as well. So, you know, so they were there. And, uh... Cage came through, and we talked, we laughed, I liked his vibe, and, you know, it was, it was cool, man, and we just, I just threw something together and said, okay, how about this? Dumb. And Stretch said, yeah, yeah, that, that'll work. I said, okay, let's go. And we just did it, did it like that. What was it like recording at Stretch and Bob's house? Um, it was weird, which is why my verse on that record sounds very... Um, uh, very unpleasant, harsh, uh, very antagonistic, and not my usual uh, mm, uh, it, it just wasn't fun. Now, it was, it was the utmost enjoyment to do it with Cage or any other artist, you know, in the art you know, that's that's a whole different vibe for me. You know, once I'm involved with the art, that's, you know, it, I disappear, what you would call I, the self. That That's gone. Now it's just the energy of creation happening. But the things that I was going through in my personal life at that point was of such a nature that it was hard to really focus on making a, having a cool time making a, a promo. You know, and at that point, the promos were becoming like a chore. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, it's still a dope record, you know, but I'm just remembering, like you said, uh, how it was doing it at Stretch House. I didn't want to do it at Stretch and uh, Bob's house. I've, no, but, you know, the reason it ended up being that was one of the reasons why I sound like that on that on that record. You know, and I start losing it at the end of it and just you know there's a, a freestyle on 
Barbados show at Keith where the same thing happened. You know, it was during that same time. It may have been that same week. I'm not sure. And I just could not focus on having a good time. I think Keith was up there, too. Keith was aware of what was going on, and I think he was enjoying that I was kind of in that state of mind as far as what it reflected right. on the creativity, you know? That's how crazy Keith was, you know? Or how crazy he is, you know, or is. The dreads out, about putting heads out to pass the mental disaster. Blast the let out, the scientific rhyming terrific till the end. And when the birds conclude, move on the skins. The flesh, the stress from the test of your stamina. Like the camera, when you take one step and I'm a damager like they rule. They who play fool, get the shakes, win the rap again. While I'm packing in the fucking pigs, nothing fakes, it's nothing tastes like the genuine article. I'm sparking crews like bags of weed and number hummers. Do the time to do brothers. I'm Michael Ben, did my color. Discover the rougher lyrical butter to smother. Your arteries, just a part of me, enough to kill ya. For real, the serial killers, down the pillar, cap, I'm filthy. Like Bixby, without the camera, Susanna, owe me ten grand, man, I slammed her. Yesterday, I broke the best away like Jeff Bridges, a rap assassin, bashing niggas in they bitch. I got you stuck off the ground, Yeah, I got you stuck off the ground, Which takes us to Hydra. Right. Fast forward, of course. Would I be accurate in saying that your first Hydra release was supposed to have been stuck off the realness, but only 100 copies of the test pressing were ever produced? So, after I'm brought to Hydra uh, through Mike Heron, I don't know if you know him. Absolutely. He went on. To, yeah, yeah, okay. So, you know, I'm running around with Keith at this point. You know, we're going up... To, Broadway, walking around, 42nd Street and 8th Avenue and 9th Avenue, just hanging out, talking music, eating pizza, going in stores, bookstores, wink, wink, bookstores and all kind of <laughs> stuff and just hanging out and, you know, that was the district and, you know, you see Melly Mel up there in the city and you see all these other cool dudes and, you know, and it's great. And um, I ran into Tim Dog that same day that I that I ran into um, that Mike Heron first met me that day, like in Manhattan as well on Eighth Avenue. And Tim Dog was selling this record with um, the rest of Ultramagnetic in in the back of a trunk, and they're giving out these cassettes, and it's called um, Fuck Compton, I believe. I, I I don't remember it exactly, but it's like these, you know, the, the cassettes and. They're like, yeah, dog, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Keith said, oh, yeah, this is Tim Dog, you know, and uh, blah, blah, blah. It's a set and everything. And I'm like, yeah, boom. And we uh, introduced, and I'm like, yo, my brother, what's up? So he said, yeah, man. And I said, I love your verse on the uh, chorus, you know, whatever. And he says, yeah, this is my new joint. And they're handing out these tapes, and I took a couple of them. Wish I had my copies, but, you know. And I met Heron that same day. I think he was around talking to them as well or something, something, something. And he just said, yo, man, you need to come by Hydra, man. And, you know, me and, you know, Jerry, we got this thing happening, man. You need to get down. So we hooked up. He brought me by and, 
you know, I let, you know, he was already aware of what was going on. So I didn't really have to play any demos or audition. Or, he just said, yo, you, what you want to do, man? I said, well, what you want to do? And that was that. So again, started making demos. He said, yeah, man, why don't you, you know, try to see what you can come up with for an album. So I started, you know, I just like making demos. So I started making demos with that in mind. And uh, one of the records that I had already was a record called Stuck Off The Real. And he liked it so much that he wanted to use it. And I said, oh, all right, man, all right, we could use it. And he said, well, but I'd like to record it over, you know, because uh, and I said, hmm. And I was, at that point, I was very leery about re-recording something I made from my house because I didn't like the way it sounded. Like once you re-record something, I didn't believe you could capture the same magic. Right. But we went ahead and recorded a bunch of tunes that I already had that he heard, and he said, "I like this. I like yo, man. Why don't you do this for a record?" And I said, uh, "Okay." So it was a few of those tunes. So that was one that I did do, and I said, "Man, I don't like it." He said, "Yo, man, it's cool." I said, "I don't like it. It don't sound like the original, man." Listen to the original. Then we would always listen to the original that I made at home. Then we listened to that version. And he would end up saying, but this, the new one is cleaner and blah, blah, blah. And I said, nah, man, it's just not. And I never really signed off on it, believe it or not. I, I didn't, I just, I just, I mean, look, I had the demo and, you know, I like that. So I wasn't going to change my mind on that. Yeah. And there's a bunch of other records like that, too. I said, nah, I would rather just do something new for you and with you without, and not try to recreate those Cenobite-era outtakes or demos and stuff, you know? And that spirit and energy be lost in translation. Yeah, definitely. And that's what I felt about that stuck off, the, that version, you know, what we what's called the Simo Greens version. You know, that was yeah. Hydra Studio. So I I, nah, I wasn't wasn't a fan. So I did I never signed off on it as a single. Didn't wasn't feeling it. He knows this though. I'm not saying anything yeah. crazy. Yeah. What do you remember about Seeds of Hate in recording that? Oh, that was fun. Now this by this time uh I had been going to power play a lot. So, you know, I started um hanging out with Cuss a lot, right? That was in um that was the engineer. I forgot his last name, damn, but Cuss. A kid called no, 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 no. Cuss. I forgot it heck, I forgot like what his nickname would be that people would record know him as an engineer. Right. But Cuss was doing a lot of things for a lot of cats too. And I'm sorry I can't remember all the cool guys he was working with. But anyhow, he was in there in Power Play and uh, there was a few other people. But Cuss was kind of cool. He was into what I was doing, and I felt comfortable working with him. He started to know my workflow. Hey, Don, I got you all set up. So one of those songs was um, Seeds of Hate that I did. And um, Piece of the Action, I think, was the same day. So they kind of have the same kind of thing going on but um seeds of hate i really dug that because i love the sample that was one of the first few records that i tried to take a drum set 
from a record, the complete drum set, you know, and not really mix it up too much, like snare from here, hi-hat from there. I wanted to use, I went through a phase where I would try to take the set from one record, no matter how hard it was to get each piece, but to take the, even the um, ambient sounds from the drum loop or the drums from a particular record or sample and have that as the actual background to the loop or the bass line, right. you know, whatever you call it. So, and I liked it, and I, you know, the subject matter was very, you know, esoteric, uh, yeah. occult, or, you know, I was really studying a lot of, lot of very different kind of material in books at that point. So the references were, my reference material was very crazy back then, very disturbing some might say <laughs> it, it really seeps into uh your presentation as far as the design as well you could look at the godfather don logo and it kind of speaks to this uh, black metal influence it was back oh then. yes yeah I was, oh i love black metal music I, am i allowed to say that <laughs> as a hip-hop artist i mean yeah i mean oh i mean so many records so my black metal collection was almost as as heavy as my um, hip-hop collection. Well, my hip-hop collection wasn't that heavy. You know, I would li basically listen to whoever was new out, just just buy it, just to see what's going on. Like, research, you know, hear it. Blah, blah, first Kid Rock album, first... I know, you know, first Kid Rock album, first this, uh, you know. So, all right. So I had a real nice collection of tapes that I had sold recently. But, um... Yeah, so the Godfather Don logo, yeah, but definitely black metal influence. So that's cool. I guess everybody can peep that out. At, no, maybe not. You know, but it was certainly, it was certainly in my mind back then. As a lot of my um, vocals at that time on the Cenobite stuff, right? Or those um, my home demos. You know, people could hear that. Seven degrees of elevation. Yeah. Uh, certain, you know, all of those type of songs and rhymes I sniff, uh, you know, all of that stuff, you know, very black metal uh, influence. me about the different palette you went for for the hydra beat series ah uh, yeah uh okay that's the mpc 60 right which mike heron says man 
this dude uses that machine, it makes it sound like an orchestra. That's his quote, <laughs> not mine. <laughs> it's true. So, yeah, so thanks. And, um, you know, I just had all these, I got these hundreds and hundreds of discs. I still have hundreds of discs, man. So if you know anybody with an MPC-60 that would loan it to me, I'd love to just dump all of these um, beats I have on these hundreds of discs, man, that I made on the MPC-60. And um, I, I would just um, experiment with all of these sneers and drums and this. and it, that, that, again, that was a time I was trying to just take drums off of records, no matter how hard it was to get the drums uh, from a, a particular um, song, you know, or, or like where it wasn't just a drum loop. It was drums in the song, you know, right. but the drums are so wonderful that I had to find a way to extract them. And, you know, and uh, those were ma ma mainly the Hydra beats was like a result of all of that experimentation and just using the most weirdest loops I could find or, you know, Love it. stuff like that. Love it. A lot of experimenting. I've heard you say you were intimidated in a studio environment. How instrumental was Vic in you navigating from a basement to a studio environment? When you look back at that support system and mentorship you had with Vic, right. what did you learn about maintaining a sense of fluidity in a creative atmosphere making music with Vic? Oh, yeah, definitely. Vic was the man. Vic, Vic uh, allowed... Vic... Um, he exposed me to the studio ethic, you know, um, like prepping and breaking down the idea of breaking things down, of keeping your discs uh, marked properly, uh, BPMs written on it. Uh, can can you imagine? A lot of my first discs never had the BPMs like written on it. So, wow. I mean, yeah. So. I would just have to load them and find out what this was. And Vic would go, you're wild, Don. You're, you're a wild man, you know. So then I would start, you know, marking things. And, you know, and then working with, he, um, he, he showed me uh, good studios, what makes a good studio, good engineer, you know, Troy Hightower versus Jamie Stop, this, this one, Green Street. So just the whole studio rat, thing that I got that education with Vic or that introduction uh, with VIC with Vic you know because I, I like the beat nuts I like Juju and I like the idea that a beat maker could be an artist himself as a beat maker which is cool I thought it was great I mean that part of it I did like believe it or not I, I said yeah yeah but man, just to be a beat maker and not have any words, you gotta have some words. So I just said, you, you gotta rhyme, you gotta rap, and so I just ended up doing everything. But um, in the studio, it was great. You know, Vic showed me how to be comfortable in the studio, what it meant to be comfortable in the studio, and getting there early and getting a nice vibe going and. It was cool. A lot of nice sessions, a lot of nice places, a lot of nice gigs and stuff. Um, it's cool. That time with uh, Vic and the when we formed the Groove Merchants, all all of that time. That's that was some cool stuff. 
that was a fun time. Very fun time. And it wasn't a production team where you had to do everything together. It was purely a passion project for you, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, can you imagine somebody being on the same page with you creatively? That was great. It's a blessing. I mean, where you're, right? Where your conversation, it's like the other person is thinking of it before you. Man, we're talking in, the, in Vic's Jeep and we're driving around digging for records. We're like, man, why can't basses sound like this? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, man, and why does it have to sound so thin? That's what I'm saying. The next thing I do, man, I'm going to make it like, yeah, I'm working on something like that. Listen to this. Oh, wow. Well, listen. And I would just do a drum loop. Then he would say, man, check this go. This would go great over that. Listen to this Spanish record I got. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is all. You know, whatever. He said, Don, I know you got some drums for this. I know you do, man. And, you know, vice versa, I would say, yo, look at this record I found. He said, these drums. And it was really nice. I could do something and just send it to him or bring it to him. This is before the Internet. I could do something and just give him the disc and say, man, see what you can do with this, man. And then we'll come back to this great record, you know, and say, man, we're going to use this from Curious George. We're going to, you know, whatever. What's the story behind the remix for House of Pain's On Point? Oh, yeah, the House of Pain record. Okay, that was another really nice trip, nice gig. We got to work in a really nice studio that, for some reason, was very way, way out in Long Island somewhere. But it was a nice drive. Uh, it was a nice gig. And um, we got the mute. We got the mute. Vic got the... Uh, he said, hey, Don, man, yo what do you have for this? And they're going to do a remix to so-and-so, and, you know, what do you think? And I, you know, we're listening, and I said, okay, let's hook up and see what we can do. And we hooked up, and we're going through stuff, and we came up with something, and we went to the studio to lay it down. At that point, I was um, rhyming as a joke on all of the things I was remixing, you know, Vic would say, you got a rhyme for this? Or, yo, you... You know, I said, yo, let me drop something on that. So almost every remix we did, you know, I would, like, do a rhyme on it. I guess we were trying to uh, kill two birds with one stone, but wasn't very successful most of the time. <laughs> so that was but, you um, being tongue-in-cheek. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, it's just cool enough doing a lot of these great beats and remixes for people. Then, you know, how... How, uh, you know, that, that wasn't too cool trying. Hey, and we also kicked in a verse um, at, at uh, just only this much more. Nah, you know, I, I was, again, I never really thought of myself as an MC or a rapper. Like, yes, I need to be on the, I, I never, I still don't. You know, I never thought of myself like that. And uh, so it was weird. So that record, um, nice studio, good gig. Great, great album and uh, artist, and that was a lot of fun. And I think I did, yeah, I think I did, uh, um, let's see. There was a Michelle Legrand record that I really wanted to use on the um, One Love, you know. And I don't know if Vic was with it in the beginning, but I think he, 
he liked it uh, just the way I, I wanted to hook it up. And he had some great drums and stuff. And I said, okay, okay, you know, let's let's, let's go with that. And um, yeah, we did it uh, in his basement. We came up with it. I used to love working at Vic's, um, his mom's house, you know, when he was uh, living with his mom in the basement. And a lot of great memories. You know, No ID used to stop by. Wow. Clue used to stop by. Uh, Steve Stout used to stop by. I mean, it was it all was wonderful. It was wonderful, man. I used to end up staying there because his mother cooked so great. You know, his great rice and beans. And his father made this wonderful roast chicken. And it just felt so uh, wonderful and homely there. And yeah, I don't know. It's just, it was just at the time, man. You know, I'd get out of my neighborhood, come over to Queens. It was nice and quiet over there. And he had the nice, you know, nice, had good record collection like mine and the things I like. And, you know, we both had the same equipment, basically. He was a little bit more advanced with as far as the equipment and stuff. But as far as creatively, we were both on the same page. So I could start something. He could finish it. He could start something. And Phil comes, Don, you know, work with this, man. Let me go run out and do a few errands for my mom. And, and he'd come back and he'd hear, a, he'd hear it and be like, oh, shit. Okay, great, great, you know. And um, so the one love was basically something, you know, I, I, I came up with that loop. He put the drums to it and, you know, he put the finishing touches on it and, you know, we ran it up to uh faith at uh columbia she was like okay faith newman work yeah 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 faith newman and um she said yeah cool cool works and uh that's how that went down that was cool man now the rumor is that anybody that works on a platinum record is supposed to get a plaque is am i wrong with that or is that is that the way it goes I thought that's how it went. That was my understanding, that, yeah. Right, right. That's what I thought. Okay, now I'm just saying. I'm not I'm not saying anything past that. I, I'm, <laughs> I just wanted to know. I was curious. Um, this is a joke yeah. that ends up becoming uh, an inclusion on the 25th anniversary, I believe, of Illmatic, if I'm right in saying that. Thank you. That Okay. Now, if I'm involved in a in a record that huge or something that iconic, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I mean, it's, I don't know. I You've just thought, it. yeah, yeah. Word is born, you got six minutes on that Jack Kidd, that shit is real. Hey, yo, yo, hey, yo, hey, yo, hey, yo, check this shit out, man. Hey, yo, go, get a cigarette, man. Yo, here you go, here you go, here you go. Yo, check it out, man. Check out what I got here, man. What is that? What's that? Yo, it's a letter I got from my man Nas, man. Word is born. What it say, kid? What up, kid? I know shit is rough doing your bid. When the cops came, you should have slid to my crib. Fucking black, no time for looking back is done. Plus, congratulations, you know you got a son. I heard he looks like you. Why don't your lady write you? Told her she should visit, that's when she got hyper. Flipping, talking about he acts too rough. He didn't listen, he be riffing while I'm telling him stuff. I was like, yeah, shorty don't care. She a snake too. Fucking with them niggas from that fake crew that hate you. But yo, guess who got shot in the dome? 
piece, Jerome's niece on her way home from Jones Beach's bug. Plus, little Rob is selling drugs on the dime, hanging out with young thugs that all carry nines. And nighttime is more tripe than ever. What up with Port Mega? Did you see him? Are y'all together? If so, then hold a foot down, represent to the fullest. Say what's up to herb, ice, and bullet. I left for half a hundred in your commissary. You was my nigga when push came to shove. But it was a great, you know, big record, big time. You know, a lot of, you know, we got a lot of other nice things from there. I think Vic worked, uh, did pun and stuff on that side. Mm. I was starting to do the four horse. You know, we was we started doing a lot of cool stuff, you know, at that point. And we did still did a lot of nice things together and tried to develop things like the Bass Blaster Project and, you know, and, you know, a lot of other artists that went on to do stuff, but uh, probably our demo never got recognized. You know, I don't want to name the artists, and, but, uh, right. you know, right. we were doing a lot of lab work, you could say. You mentioned demos. There's a period after Diablo Belique, and you're working with a lot of artists for demos and helping with their development. One of those artists was Scaramanga, wasn't it? Yes, Sir Menelik Scaramanga. Or Scaramanga, I guess we might as well say now. Um, yeah, Scara, uh Keith had brought him by. Now, the way Scaramanga would tell it is that he was a fan of mine since Raise It Up. I'm not saying nothing that he wouldn't say or didn't say to me. So Keith says, man, I like to come by with my homeboy, man, and, you know, at that time so mentally man and you know some say yeah he's like yo man big fan so he's in my living room and he would just hang out while me and Keith were doing some of these promos you know what ended up being the Cenobites so he said man yo one of these days man I, I like to get on one of you I said well you know, you know. and um after I, uh Keith started doing other things and I think he moved to LA and then went to uh went to Europe and doing a lot of stuff uh, Menelik was still around, and he would say, hey, man, you know, is it possible? I want to work on some stuff. And we're... So, yeah, I did a promo with him, and then, you know, I started, um, you know, just checking him, seeing what he's about and what he's doing, and we start vibing. The same process like Keith. And, uh, I mean, I wouldn't say I was mentoring him or anything like that, because he was already a great artist. Yeah. I mean, I call, I mean, you know, I, I don't consider myself a rapper, you know, like a MC. Like, I, those guys are MCs. They all really do it. You know, they, I'm an MC. Like, I don't even feel right saying I'm an MC. I, I just don't. So, uh. Which is crazy when, to me. It's, <laughs> it's crazy to you. Uh, no, I, I don't know. Not to, I mean, why? Because, uh. Look, I—I I mean, if I have to do a—if a, uh, I have to do like like now, I'm writing uh, material like for I guess what would be a third solo album. You know, I don't know who's gonna put it out or who's or whatever, but you know, I'm just writing a lot, a lot. You know, writing like a demon again, as they say, and um, I don't think of it as okay. Now, as Godfather Don, let me see, what would I, you know, the MC, I, I, I just don't do it. I don't do it. I don't think like that, you know. Uh, whether 
it, it, it whether that what makes comes out comes out i don't know but yeah. i just don't think of it like that Menelik was an mc you know he's he's an mc you know keith is an mc these are i i don't think of myself in the same way like an mc i i can't i mean i could i i give you that i could say i i a beat maker or i make hip hop music i i don't know just Describing myself, I, I don't yeah. know. If, I just don't feel comfortable doing it. it. I understand. It doesn't make much sense to me because it's it's all transitory to me. It could change at a moment's notice. <laughs> Do you think you would look back at your road to body of work through a different kind of lens today? Had the marketing been different back then? Oh right. Well, um, one thing that I noticed um, back then. The, the 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 marketing was more straightforward. Um, let's say the marketing. I mean, back then, it wasn't very much. It, it did to me. It didn't appear as though the record labels were acting like they were. Um, uh. uh making records for a genre audience. To me, it didn't feel like that. Like, it it felt like they were making records that you would put on the same shelf as Whitney Houston, right? Or yeah. uh, Michael Jackson. You know, it's, it's, you go to the record store. This is hip-hop. This is R&B. This is pop. This is rock. So I didn't really... Um, see a, a big difference in how they were marketing it, you know, as far as um, with the push they would give back then, and, you know, you would, they would take you to these parties, and, you know, you would see R&B people there, and all kind of other people, and I thought that was great, and it was fascinating. You know, now it's like, um, I don't really know about records until I look in that rabbit hole that genre you know what i mean right. and then i would see this artist and that artist like wow that's so many in there but when you look just on the the general view or the the the, bait, the cursory glance or level you know you wouldn't necessarily see them but then you find out they're platinum they're gold and but i i don't hear them on the i don't see them or hear them on tv or on the radio like that and they're platinum and so it's just different with the, um, the the marketing and the reach, right? Like the, the directness to the customer, I think, has a lot to do with the marketing, that it becomes more niche almost, you know? Like we can target you specifically with this product, you know, or for this product. And that's the way it feels now. Back then, it was like for everyone who likes music and likes hip-hop, Submit it for your approval. What's going on? If you are still listening to this episode and enjoying the podcast, why not become a patron of Fly Fidelity at patreon.com slash flyfidelity. Becoming a patron means you are directly supporting our show and helping us to create a new episode every week it also means that as a thank you for being a super supporter you'll be able to access exclusive content to you including
including Patreon updates, offers and discounts, a monthly secret podcast, early access, and so much more. It would be an automatic line of separation that was necessarily there. And don't cross them. Now, I know all hip-hop artists like each other. I mean, not in that sense, but all hip-hop artists, all rappers recognize everyone else as rapping. You know, like we're all construction workers or we're all in the Army. So I, that recognition, I, I, could, I could assume is there. But when it comes to, like, the, the marketing of it, I think that's where it separates, mm. where, you know, we're in this class or we're on this side of the block and you guys, you know, you're underground or you're this and you, or you're pop. And, you know, so the marketing to me often reflects that, unfortunately. Completely agree. What kind of space has playing in a jazz band given you to think about your relationship with hip hop today? Um, well, it allows me not to take the hip-hop, um, writing too, um, serious, meaning that, um, everything that I would want to say in, in a particular 16 bars, I realize that not everything is going to be able to be put in this 16 bars, so... The density is not always necessary. The extreme technical backflips and uh, histrionics, all that is not always necessary. Mm. So like a great jazz solo, for how many ever how, how measures it goes, beginning, middle, and, you know, the classic formula, uh, ni- nice content, uh, things that can be recognized, enjoyed, and, you know, you recognize the art form and you you work within it from a love of it and to to to, to add to it, you know? Mm. To, you want it to be an enriching experience, mm. you know? Mm. It's an extension, so, isn't it? Sure. You know, um, the idea of improvisation, I guess I've always had that, you know, which I guess what made me really get into the playing live music. I said, "Oh wow, you can you can see." I, I, I'm, I always relate rhyming with playing a solo instrument like a guitar or a saxophone, like the vocal line. I said, "Wow, you can you can make a line over the four over the bar and still have it connect to the." the three bars before that and, you know, just a, a, a stream of consciousness sort of thing, you know. I, I, I really dig having that and really understanding the, the importance of that now in the, uh, the rap lyric, just as opposed to a bunch of cool phrases or great pattern, uh, great pattern sections or this, that, you know just that I can have a, a real concise statement that allows the listener to grab on, hold on, and enjoy the 16 bars, and hopefully it takes you someplace and you come out on the other end where I left you in one piece with something uh, 
you can walk away with. Speaking of being taken someplace, we've been talking about some of your most remarkable changes within your work over your career. How have the last two years or so changed either your practices or practices or routines? Oh wow! Yeah, uh, I tell you, the if we're talking the last two years, then we can't mention that without mentioning the pandemic. And what that has done for me was, well, one, it started me um, writing a hell of a lot more as far as uh, lyrics and, you know, doing a lot more beats and, you know, a lot more people saying, hey, you're not playing a lot of jazz stuff now, so how do you feel about doing a verse here, a verse there, or making a beat for me here? So... I had the time to do it because there was no live performances happening. So I got to study myself, if you can say that, a little bit and find out why I did some things this way and why I didn't do some things this way. This is all creatively, of course. And just how going forward I would be able to get the most out of this when I do it next time or this. So I developed a fresh approach to music, period, or at least fresh for me. Uh, Or uh, an approach that I didn't really conceive of fully prior to the two years that we're talking about, about related to approach, uh, patience, uh, simplicity, and and um, weightiness of content um, as far as musical content, you know, emotional content, uh, dynamic content, right? You could say a lot in a, you know, you could could really say something very heavy with a whisper, and you can yell something out and not saying anything, basically, you know? Or like saying BS, bunch of BS, but you're yelling at the top of your young lungs. You got the face and the mouth, and you're not saying anything really. Mm, mm. You, you know what I mean? And on the other hand, you could whisper something or say something with the most calm speaking voice, and you could say the heaviest words that you would ever want to hear. You know? So those things really, I incorporated a lot of that into my practice. You know far as approaching the music and the creative you know aspects of my music i'd also say that in your practice it's also fueled by this urge to constantly change your process to bring into this focus of the most immediate and present version of your creative self isn't it right oh yeah definitely uh the is of things for me what is is where everything can ever be if that, if not to get too uh philosophical or esoteric or however you want to say um and whatever's in the past to me is dead, and whatever's in the future, who the hell knows it's a it's a guess at, yeah. you know in the basic uh level so uh here and now is where I can do anything and everything that I can do at this moment. So I really 
rarely ever want to repeat what I did already or uh, have any flights of fancy about something that may not be or may not be realistic or anything. So whatever is at hand, that's what I tend to want to deal with. You know, so as far as creating things or being creative, to me, that's where everything is, right here. Absolutely. Everything that can actually be is right here, right now. Absolutely, absolutely. You so, come from the Sun Ra school of thought, don't you? Oh, yeah, I tell you. Uh, when I was recruited by Ahmed Abdullah, trumpet player for uh, Sun Ra, to be in his band, which I've been in for the last maybe five to seven years, um, he says, man, look, the way you're doing music, Don, is the way we want to end up being with it. He said, you can't read or you say you can't read or write music, but you're memorizing all these Sun Ra songs, and we're still, you know, a lot of us do the sheet music because, man, we don't have time to try to memorize all this stuff. He said, we eventually want to get to that. Because I'm saying, man, all you guys read charts and read music. It's, it must be a wonderful thing, man. Well, he said, well, you can always learn that, man. But to memorize these things like you're doing, that's where we all want to end up, man. That's where all of us want. You know, so. And the philosophy is great. And just the openness to, to, to understanding. You know, the never-ending understanding of what is, you know, and what could be, you know, in, in many respects. You know, that really made the creative aspects to my music, any kind of music, it just opened things up for me. Godfather, Don, I want to thank you for what has been an incredible journey into your career. What's next? You mentioned the album earlier. What's next as far as jazz music coming out from yourself? Yeah, okay. Yeah, man, I appreciate it, Luke. And um, I guess uh, what's next is I have a, um, well, I mean, it may or may not be of interest to your listeners, but uh, I hear that the um, Hazardous is going to be uh, re-released uh, next week. I think uh, nice. HHV may be um, behind that one. And uh, as far as jazz, I have the osmosis, I mean the um, the gnosis, the re osmosis, I, I, I think I told you about that. I always get that mixed up because I, I, I was naming them at the same time. But the osmosis is the one with uh, parental and the gnosis is the one with William Parker and Ronnie Barats, the jazz record. <laughs> so I have that. I have a duo record that I'm working on with a great drummer from uh, New York, from California, named... V.J. Anderson, and that one is going to be called uh, Free Exchange, and uh, that should, I mean, it's being, the finishing touches is being put together on it, um, you know, and we're out here, we're, you know, we're, we're looking for possible distributors and things to do some uh, new Godfather Don stuff, jazz stuff, as well as um, hip-hop stuff. We're exploring that. You know, I'm getting down with a few other things. We got a, a soap company that I'm associating myself with. I guess I can say that. Interesting. Called, yeah, it's called Effervescent Natural Soaps. 
you know, you can Instagram that effervescence, natural soaps. And um, also, you know, um, I'm just open to uh, any new projects uh, that involve things really being creative and pushing, pushing, where it, uh, pushing the boundaries, you know. But the jazz thing is definitely uh, coming along. Lots of projects in the works. And um, lots of writing, uh, hip-hop, jazz, lots of stuff. So anybody want to, you know, is interested in that, they could always, um, you know, Instagram if they have interest in any of these things, you know, and check me out. There it is. You heard it on Fly Fidelity. Rodney, Godfather, Don Chapman, thank you so much for joining us to do this. Hey, no problem, man. No problem. No problem. It was fun. It's fun. Soothing sounds of Fly Fidelity podcast in partnership with Rappers Delight, the brand new hip hop parody car collection set, original art with featuring artists from Garbage Pal Kids and many, many more. You can own such classics as Cheesy E and Swim Shady. Protect your deck, baby. Any supporters of Fly Fidelity on Patreon get 30% off vouchers at rappersdelight.org. That's W A R P P E R S. E-E-L-I-G-H-T dot org. You can support Fly Fidelity Podcast, unlock exclusive content on the Patreon, including a monthly secret podcast and more. I wish I could show my appreciation for this podcast. I wish I could respond to it somehow or be notified in the future when Fly Fidelity updates because it's so great. But I don't think there's a way I can do any of those things. Uh-oh. You're wrong. <laughs> Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud and never miss an episode. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. My people saw you with me where you were.